Hey, Door of Hope fam. Welcome to the fourth week of Advent, which is also called a week of love. The fourth candle of Advent is often called the candle of love. We're reminded that God sent his son into the world that first Christmas because of his great love for all people. 16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Okay, light the last candle. Buddy, can you light the last candle? Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Light the last candle. We're going to light the fourth candle. You want to do it? Okay. Okay, hold it. Okay. Good job, buddy. All right, now let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your unwavering love for humankind. We ask that you encourage us to love boldly, to proclaim the love of your son, Jesus, um, beyond our own social circles, beyond the church, and beyond um, our political views. We know we cannot be consistent and we're incapable of doing it perfectly, but thank you so much that you sustain us and that you give us the strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bye. Merry Christmas. Bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Hey everyone, it's Cameron. It's good to be with you over the old internet here. Um, we have just finished up our seven weeks through the book of the prophet Micah. Um, and for today, we're just going to have a, a, an Advent message. Um, if you've been following along with the video services, You've seen that we've been including little Advent readings and, and times as part of each of our services. And today we're just going to focus on the fourth week of Advent, uh, the week of, of love and uh, contemplate the love of God together. I want to keep it simple um, and, and hopefully short, uh, but it, to, to me, it, it, this, this could just not come at a better time. It, it feels like I'm, I'm assuming for you as well, we could all really use a reminder uh, of the love of God amidst the chaos uh, of, of our chaotic year, um, hopefully coming to a close. We'll, we'll see what 2021 has for us. Um, but there's this, there's this ache that, that I believe is, um, is basically universal uh, to human nature. Um, it's, it's the ache that gets sort of reignited or brought up again um, when you turn on the news and read of, of some new tragedy um, whenever you turn on the news and see a leader, be it political or in the church or whatever else, um, who's supposed to be trustworthy and who's supposed to have sort of your best interest and my best interest at heart, um, just sort of falling into disgrace, falling into some sort of scandal. Um, it, it's the ache that's there when you find yourself sitting with a crying child. <laughs> If you've ever done that before, and I, I don't necessarily mean like crying over uh, who gets to play with the toy right now, but whenever a child is moved to tears over something legitimately distressing, um, and, and and you're trying to help them make sense of the brokenness of the world, you feel this ache. Um, it's the ache that's there when when we hold the hand of a dying loved one, or when our criminal justice system. Uh, actually fails and perpetuates injustice against someone, uh, especially someone particularly vulnerable. 
Um, it's when we get the news that our parents are divorcing or when, when we remember after like a brief gracious forgetting, uh, you know, we, f- we forget it for a minute, but that we're in the middle of a now nine month long uh, global pandemic and we don't know exactly when we're gonna be able to live life in close proximity to our friends and extended family again and all the other issues that come along with, with that. Um, this ache gets captured um, in our best art in humanity's most moving poems and and the best films, the best pieces of music, they're able to capture it and reflect it and get us to to note it. The same ache drives some to to drugs uh, for sometimes one of two reasons. One, uh, to sort of dull the pain of the ache, um, sort of to self-medicate, or uh, to try to sidestep it altogether and try to counterfeit a utopia um, or a paradise that's located just in the pleasure centers of the brain rather than actually out in the world where it's meaningful for people. Um, it's the same ache that was behind so much of the prophetic lament we read about in the book of Micah as, as he's mourning the deep social injustice and the religious idolatry that the people of God had both been victim of and perpetuators of. Um, It's the ache at the heart of haunting Psalm 13, which says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's an ache that exists whether or not someone is aware of sort of the biblical story and and, and the biblical account of the loss of paradise that God created the world good and he put humanity into the world good, but humanity sinned and we were, we lost that paradise due to our sin. Um, It's there whether or not people are aware of the promise of God to actually heal his people and bring them back to that paradise. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's behind every cry in the Bible for a Messiah, for a one true good king, for an anointed one who is going to take the shattered mess and to put it right, to heal that ache once and for all, to take a world that we all can recognize day in and day out is not the way it's supposed to be and make it the way it is supposed to be. Your neighbors might not know it. You, you might not even know it. But that ache is the universal ache of Advent, of longing, of waiting, of yearning for the King to come, to bring Himself and to bring His blessing and His goodness, the fullness of those things into our world. Have you been feeling the ache recently? Well, we're going to take a few minutes um, to reflect on the love of God and and what it might have to say to that condition we all find ourselves in. And we're going to look at John 3.16. I've never preached John 3.16 before. It's obviously one of the most beloved and popular and uh, widely known uh, verses in the entire Bible. That that makes it dangerous. Uh, Well, it, it makes us dangerous when we handle it because it's so familiar. And we can take what is, uh, for good reason, one of the most celebrated and profound passages of Scripture 
uh, and we can think that it's old news, it's old hat, it's boring. Uh, it doesn't have anything left to speak to us. And so I don't know if we're going to get anything new today, but I know that what we are going to get is some of the deepest, richest, most central truth of the scripture. And I hope that's good enough for us. I hope that's good enough for you. I hope it's good enough for me. Uh, I believe that it is. Um, so let's do it. We're going to look at it in three parts, which reveal the surprise of God's love, the depth of God's love, and the salvation of God's love. We've already had it read for us by the Lee family, which is so awesome. Um, and uh, so we'll just jump in. The first phrase from John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world, a phrase that I think is burned into every Christian, every Christian's mind for good reason. Um, that word love uh, is, is uh, a translation uh, of the Greek agapao, um, and you've probably heard a million Christian sermons about the different, different Greek words for love and agape and how great it is, and it's committed, this loyal love, self-sacrificial. Uh, I'm not going to rehash that right now, but I am going to pull back uh, Jack Cottrell's definition of love. We've talked about it a couple times over our months together. I just think it's so good. Um, here's how he defines the love of God once more. He says, this is the love of God is his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf for their happiness and welfare. Um, so, so that's the love of God. Unselfish love concerned and self-sacrificial for the ultimate good of its object. That's what God has. But what's surprised, where the surprise comes in, hopefully you're not surprised that God loves. Um, if you do, please, let's get together. I would love to, <laughs> to talk, talk through some things with you. Um, but who he loves. The surprise comes with the object of his love. For here, here we see that it's that not just that God loves in the abstract, but that it, God loved the world. Uh, in Greek, it's the cosmos. And, and in the sense that John uses here, it can be thought of as, as people. Usually when the New Testament writers talk about the world, it's, it's people and sort of the, the, the collection of their ideas and values and habits and systems really often that exist apart from him separate from him and, and, uh, and separate from allegiance to him. And the world almost always, uh, when it's talked about in contexts like these, it has this negative connotation because it's the place where evil and opposition to God grows and festers. Um, so what God is saying here is, is radical, um, or rather what John is, is saying here about God is radical. It's that the world... The world, um, in all of its sin and opposition, sitting there in rebellion against him, is the object of his love. Before the world had done anything to earn the love of God, in fact, it had done plenty to lose it, <laughs> God's posture towards the world was love none the less. And, you know, we've, we studied in 1 John almost the opposite of this. It was the command not to love the world or the things of the world. And that's true as well. There's a sense in which Christians are to 
uh, flee the world, reject the world, even hate the world in terms of it boiled down to its core values aligned against God. But nonetheless, all that being true, God still loves the people of the world. And so should you, and so should I, in this sense. And we struggle, we struggle often believing that the love of the Father is actually like this, that it's the sort of love that looks at the rebellious one, uh, and yet still desires the ultimate good, still is willing to make personal sacrifice for its good. Uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it's usually not how our love works, if we're being honest. Like, our love is fickle. Our love, my, my love is contingent uh, on how someone treats me so often, on, uh, you know, how it makes me feel, how that person makes me feel, or whatever. Um, our love is selfish, self-motivated, <laughs> so often. Um I can't relate <laughs> so often to the love of God as described here. But there's another reason we struggle believing this love too. It's because so many of us uh, tragically have had our understandings of a, of a father's love or a parent's love, a mother's love, corroded either by physical abandonment, emotional abandonment, harshness, sometimes abuse. Um, and I, I believe that when, when these kinds of things happen, they leave some of the deepest scars. And more than that, create some of the deepest spiritual barriers in our lives. Um, there's something really powerful in, in just the, the, the parent-to-child connection. There's Even before words are exchanged, when, when there's an infant, they are, I believe, being taught and communicated something about the fatherhood of God by their mom and their dad. Even pre-verbally um, and yet uh, yet that's a relationship that's so often because we're all sinners and we're all sinful it gets tarnished and to even speak of of the love of God the Father can become a, a, a prick it can become a pain um, and that's incredibly tragic but nonetheless, the scriptures declare over and over again that the, the love of God the Father is the truest and deepest and best love. Um, Romans 5.8, For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that, but that all should reach repentance. Since God loves the world, his love is universal. And that doesn't lead to a universalism. People tragically can and do reject the love of God. But his love for them remains nonetheless, even in the moment of that rejection. Wow. So the fact that God loves the world speaks of a love that is unearned by us. Because you and I are part of the world. Uh, and it's present even at our lowest moment. It's a shock. It's a surprise. But it's not just the surprise of the love of God that this passage talks about. It also gives us a bit of a, uh, of a picture of the depth of the love of God. And we want to talk about the depth of the love of God. We, we could study it for, <laughs> for the rest of our lives. Um, but we do want to, want, to, want to talk about it a bit. Um, the next phrase says, 
that he gave his only son. So God so loved the world, so, so what, to what degree, that he gave his only son. And we often don't understand like how much we value something until we are faced with like the very real possibility of having it taken away. And this is kind of a goofy example. I've never been, that I can remember, a part of like a serious auction, maybe something like in a classroom or something when I was in elementary school. But, but still, you think of an auction and uh, there's, there's an item or something that you want. Uh, maybe you have an idea in your head of, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to spend, I don't know, maybe 200 bucks to get this thing. It's, it's great. I, I really want this. 200 bucks. That's my limit. The auction goes up to 50. Uh, I'm in. Somebody raises it. It goes to 100, 150, 175, 200. Okay, I'm in. Someone else comes and says 220. Um, these are the moments uh, when, when you realize exactly what something is worth to you because you realize how much it's going to cost you to have it. Um, we don't know the depth of our value of something until we have really had the chance to count the cost, until we've really had the chance to be inconvenienced by it. Um, and what we see here is that the, the, the value of the love of God, the cost of the love of God, was his only son. That word monogene in the Greek, it just means one and only, unique. Um, it's it's his his best, his unique. In the words of D. A. Carson, his best, his unique and beloved son. Um, in our understanding of the Trinity, it reminds us that that this is God giving His very self. <laughs> you know, uh, the Trinity is a complicated, incredibly complicated bit of theology, um, but <clears throat> we can at least say that in giving His Son, God is giving of His very self god himself there is nothing greater that he could possibly give <clears throat> for uh, an expression of his love but that giving that word give there's a lot packed in there what did it mean that god gave his son well i want to talk about at least three things we could talk talk about more but first it's it's the incarnation he gave his son uh, to be born. It's, it's this, uh, the incarnation, the idea of God, the second person of the Trinity, God, the son, the eternal son, identifying with us in the most powerful way possible by becoming one of us. It's the transcendent God becoming wrapped in imminence. It's the one who is spirit becoming wrapped in flesh. It's God in all of his godness and all of his divinity, adding full, real, complete humanity to himself. Being in utero, being born, being laid in a manger, being nursed, being fed, being changed, being cleaned, raising, and then living his life as a sincere human. That was part of the giving, and that's what we celebrate right now at the Christmas season. But the giving was also, I think uh, I think for John, uh, in mind is the giving on the cross as well. It's that moment where uh, where Jesus, after his, his public ministry, he's, he's taken to the cross, and the judge of the world becomes the judged for the world. 
God taking not only our humanity into himself, but now taking the consequence and the punishment for sin into himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The giving of the Son not only dealt with the incarnation, but the cross. And then even more than that, following the cross, following that incredible act of atoning sacrifice for your behalf and mine, um, Jesus was raised, of course, and he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Uh, he, he validated all the things that he had taught by publicly appearing to, to many and continuing to teach. But he was ultimately then raised, he ascended, we're told, to the throne of God. But you know what's amazing about that? Lots of things are amazing about it. One of the things that comes to mind is that he ascended as a man. Jesus took his resurrection body with him as he ascended to the throne. And the implication of this is that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is forever man as well. Forever human as well. He has united himself to the people that he loves in the most unfathomable, eternal way possible. And when he returns, he will return uh, as one of us. No less divine, but fully human as well. So the love of God resulted in him being willing to give his son at the incarnation on the cross and even into eternity future as one who has fully identified with us to save us, to know us, to love us. It's amazing. Okay. And now the third thing we're going to look at is the salvation of God's love. It's expressed in this third clause of this, uh, of this passage, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And what's interesting to note here um, is that the default setting for humanity is to perish. Um, and I, I, it's weird. This, this is one of the claims of the Bible um, that... that uh, can tend to make people really uncomfortable, but it's also one of the ones that's most universally acknowledged, at least in part. So four or five years ago, Suzanne and I went and saw Sufjan Stevens at the, at the Schnitzer. Um, full, packed out auditorium. Um, he was touring his Carrie and Lowell album, which is beautiful and amazing. Um, but there's, there's this one song that he played, I, I remember probably more than any of the others, it's, it's on that album, it's called The Fourth of July, and it just has this, the outro of the song is just kind of this repetition of the phrase, we're all gonna die, this haunting piano, we're all gonna die, over and over and over again. And it was so weird and beautiful and profound to have this just this auditorium full of people just acknowledging this truth, we are all gonna die. It's a dark truth. Um, but it's a truth nonetheless. And I don't assume most of the people there were Christians. I don't assume that they uh, understand the full spiritual implication of that death. Uh, I don't assume that they know um, what <laughs> the, the spiritual death that's separate from the mere physical death and so on and so forth. But uh, this idea that people perish uh, is hard to avoid. We have industries that try to paper over it and distract from it and uh, delay it as long as possible. And the delay of death is generally a good thing, of course. But, um, but my point is that, yes, we, we have a weird relationship with death, but people generally will acknowledge it. Perishing 
happens. Um, but the will of God <laughs> is that none should perish. And it's not only his will, it's, it was his action in history to make a way that none would have to perish. And what he wants to offer instead is eternal life. That the end of the story doesn't have to be death. It's not that we're all going to die. It's that eternal life is available as both quality and quantity. Um, Colin Cruz says, uh, to have eternal life in the writings of John is to know God. It's to be in relationship with him, to experience all the blessings which flow from that relationship, both in the present age and in the age to come. It involves a, a qualitative change to your life. To come into contact in relationship with God himself is to transform your life. It's to experience the peace and the joy and the love that God uniquely has to bring. The purpose, um, the hope of, the of a better future and all these things transforms us now. But then it also has a quantitative uh, element too. It means that whenever we die, and you're going to die and I'm going to die, unless Christ returns, and I don't know, 2020 is been pretty weird. Maybe he's maybe he's coming back uh, super soon. I don't know. Um, but uh, barring the return of Christ, we're all going to die. Um, and the beauty of this is that life will swallow up that death. Uh, the the promise of of Jesus, the promise of God, is that. By virtue of what he's done, death does not get the last word, but it gets swallowed up in victory. And that we will be raised and we will have endless days in fellowship with God. The kind of fellowship that was lost in the garden, but will be returned to its full splendor. And fellowship with all of God's people, with one another. Everyone who's bent the knee to King Jesus. Uh, to enjoy his world and him and one another forever. It's a beautiful, beautiful hope um, that he, he offers. Um, and to perish is, is to miss out on those blessings, um, both, both in the now. It's, you know, what is to die except to be cut off from God's good world and, and the beauty of relationships and all the common graces that he gives to everybody. Uh, but it's to also suffer that spiritual death, that the, the result of e eternal separation from him into the future. Separation from that relationship with him. Um, the worst fate any could experience. He doesn't desire that. He so loved the world that he sent his only son, that he, whoever would believe would not perish, but have eternal life. And that word belief is so important. It's this Greek word, pistuo, uh, to believe. It can be translated to trust. It can be translated to put your faith in. And it does get translated those different ways throughout the New Testament. But the key thing to note is that it's not a performance. It's not a religious rite that must be uh, done. It's not an activity. It's not an achievement. It's belief. It's, it's throwing your heart and yourself onto it and saying, I know that I can't earn this thing for myself. I know I can't get there on my own terms, but I see that you've done it. I see that you've sent your son. I see that you've paid the cost. And I trust. And I believe. I have faith. 
And what this means is that if it's through faith, then that means it's available to anyone and to everyone, regardless of qualification, regardless of the depth of sin that you've fallen into, regardless of your shortcomings, regardless of your inabilities, regardless of what anyone else has told you. He's done the work. We merely grab hold of it through faith. That whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love brings salvation to the perishing. So, to wrap up, there's a couple of struggles um, that are common when we start thinking about the, the radical love of God. One, one is that what can pop into our head is this thought that, you know, well, surely he doesn't love those people. Um, for many of us, there's, there are groups of people or maybe just individuals that have really hurt us or wronged us that we, th- we think like, yeah, but that person's beyond the pale. We probably don't think that explicitly. I hope you don't if you're a Christian, but there's corners of your heart that like, yeah, I don't, how could anyone love that person? I know what they deserve. Uh, be it people who've, who've harmed you, uh, people that you don't understand, people who believe differently, people who live differently, uh, people who voted differently, um, and on and on and on and on. I don't know what rises to that level for you where you begin to let these thoughts creep into your heart, but I'm guessing there's, there's something. Um, what this verse says is that, no, he does. He does love them. And of, of course, there's more to say about that. There's, of course, uh, repentance from sin and allowing him to change us and actually uh, conform our lives to his character and on and on and on. There's, there's more we could say, but there's certainly not less we can say than that he does love them sincerely, genuinely, and with the fullness of all the things we've just described, that he would give up his son to be with them. But there's a second one as well. And I hope you don't say this or think this explicitly either, but I'm guessing that there's a subtle form of it somewhere for many of you in, back in the depths of your hearts or your minds. And that's the response that, well, surely he doesn't love me. I see how he could love this person or that. I see how he might love my children. I see how he might love my best friend or whatever, but there's no way that he feels this way about me. There's no way he wants that for me. Um, And my response is, that's not true. My response is that God loves you far greater than you could ever imagine. So I want to do something right now. Um, We don't often do this kind of thing, especially over the the internet here, but we're going to do it. Um, I want you to close your eyes. Not if you're driving, of course, but if you're uh, listening at home or somewhere else, uh, I want you to close your eyes. And I just want you to to try to receive this. I'm going to speak this over you. Um, What I believe is biblical truth here. Okay, are your eyes closed? I want you to hear this. I don't know you specifically. I'm not going to pretend that I do. I know that I'm speaking into a phone right now. (laughs) But it doesn't matter for what I'm about to say. The truth of this, this one applies regardless. At your lowest moment, at your absolute worst, even in the middle of your deepest failure, 
God loves you. And he wants nothing more than your deepest, most absolute good. To the degree that he was willing to send his one, only, unique son to bear your humanity and bear your sin so he wouldn't have to exist apart from relationship with you. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And everything in your heart might say otherwise. The data of your experiences in this world might tempt you to think otherwise. The the ringing lies of Satan himself might say otherwise. But it's true. It is true. He loves you that much. All right, you can open your eyes. Well, as we approach Christmas this week, um, my hope and my prayer, and this is for myself too, is that, uh, that every string of lights and every Christmas tree I see in the window, every meal, every gift exchanged, uh, even every moment of sadness or, or grief or anxiety, the recognition of things we've lost this year due to COVID-19 or whatever else. May each of these things drive you and drive me and drive us as a community to remember the giving of the Son of God. Let's even just think about that first giving through Mary, him entering the world as an infant, motivated by the greatest love this world has ever known and will ever know. And may we rest in that. May we rest in that and may we be eager to share it with those around us for whom it equally applies. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes might not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Amen.